Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CAL. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. Theirs are voices crying out for freedom and democracy. These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world. Hello, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vito, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. For this episode, the spotlight will be on Hong Kong, once known as the protest capital of Asia, with a vibrant civil society and free media. But Beijing has changed all that. In June 2020, China imposed a draconian national security law that has led to a crackdown on the opposition, the media, and the muffling of freedoms. Democracy activists have been harassed and sent to jail. Others have gone on self-exile. I will be speaking to Emily Lau, a member of the Democratic Party of Hong Kong, as well as called, on the troubles facing Hong Kong and what the future holds. She joins us from Hong Kong. Emily, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Maritas. Not yet arrested. I'm still okay, okay to talk to you for the time being. Oh, great. This is a good opportunity. Tell us first, Emily, how is Hong Kong these days and what's the mood? Well, I think if I look out the window now, it's raining, it's very cloudy. It, the mood is, is like that, like the weather. Uh, very dark, and I think uh, many people are very, very uh, tense and worried, and uh, some may be packing their bags and uh, getting ready to get out, and others uh, may be uh, too frightened to, to, to speak. And uh, so it is very sad. As you have said, Hong Kong used to be a very free, very safe, and very vibrant city. That's why so many people all over the world love Hong Kong. Uh, they've come and worked here, lived here, studied here. And so we have friends all over the world, including in the Philippines and other places. But now, as some people would say, the city has changed beyond recognition. So it is sad, uh, but I, I, I'm still one of those who would talk to foreigners and I say, uh, the game is not over, and uh, Hong Kong people will still continue with the struggle uh, for freedom, for human rights, uh, for high degree of autonomy, uh, which was promised in the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration and the Basic Law, whereby the Chinese government said, after the handover to, Brit uh, to China, in 1997 by Britain, the Hong Kong people will continue to enjoy their free lifestyle for 50 years. 
50 years until 2047. Now we're not even halfway there. And, uh, and I, I just cannot accept, refuse to accept that we will no longer have high degree of autonomy, no longer be free and safe. Uh, so, so we will continue to do our work to, to uh, safeguard our free lifestyle, but in a peaceful and nonviolent way. And, and we will not try to break the law. As a law professor at the Hong Kong University reminded us, they say, if you don't like the law, you can criticize it, but you shouldn't break the law. And I have no intention of breaking the law. But even then, if they still come and arrest me and others, uh, of course, there's not very much we can do. But Emily, does the academy... First, let's talk about the business community. Hong Kong used to be a financial hub in this part of the world. What is the sentiment of the business community? What's the impact of the repression on them? Well, I think there are different views. But the government of Hong Kong would love to tell the media that uh, you know, people still come and do business and the number of uh, foreign companies setting up here have not uh, dropped, uh, investment has not dropped. And so uh, it is still a very uh, uh, vibrant business and financial center. And of course, these companies also look at uh, doing business in mainland China, uh, particularly in the Greater Bay Area. So they think there are many opportunities, and but some have relocated out of Hong Kong, uh, maybe to Singapore, or maybe I don't know whether it's to Manila and other places, but by and large, the numbers are still good and they think that it's okay. And now uh, next week, uh, the uh, National People's Congress Standing Committee, which is China's parliament, they will have meeting and they will want Hong Kong to enact the anti-sanction law, which has been enacted in the mainland. And so business are concerned because the U.S. has enacted that law and the Hong Kong currency, the Hong Kong dollar is tied to the U.S. dollar. So if we have another anti-sanction law, uh, then we have both. How, how, how are the companies, the banks going to operate? So uh, there's uncertainty. And the chief executive, Carrie Lam, has said that uh, she doesn't want Beijing to just impose that law on Hong Kong uh, like Beijing did uh, with the national security law last year. She wants Hong Kong to have some autonomy and freedom to do some local enactment of the law. And so prior to that, they would listen to the concerns of the business community and others. So I think there's concern on that, but let's see how things develop uh, on, on that front. How about in the universities, Emily? How are the academics, the professors, are they being censored? I mean, are they free to teach what they used to teach? Um, I think uh, some academics are very worried and the students too. And uh, a number of universities, the management have uh, decided to uh, sort of more or less cut their ties with the student unions. And uh, something that they used to do for the student unions was to collect the fees 
from the students and give to the student union so they have money to operate and also allow the student union to use the facilities within the university. Uh, but uh, because of, you know, they think the students were involved and uh, in some of the protests and so on. So uh, they decided that they don't want to have anything to do with them. And they asked the students uh, to uh, go and do their own thing and collect the fee fees uh, from, uh, from the students. And of course, uh, at the Hong Kong University, which attracted a lot of attention recently, because on July 1st, there was a case. July 1st is, of course, the anniversary of the handover. And uh, there was a case of stabbing. A policeman was stabbed in uh, Causeway Bay, which is, of course, a very busy shopping area. And then the person who did it uh, also killed himself. And it was, of course, a big, big news. And the students, a few days later, uh, one of their committees, they uh, had a resolution uh, saying, you know, uh, they want to uh, pay their regards to the person who did it. And of course, the whole of Hong Kong were very shocked. I was shocked. And then, of course, the students were criticized. Following day, the student union came out and apologized withdrew the statement and uh, disbanded. But then the university say that's, that's very bad. And then the, uh, the, the council of the university decided that those students involved in that meeting, uh, which approved the statement, uh, are not allowed to enter the campus. So um, things are very, very, uh, you know, worrying. And in the campuses of many universities, there used to be posters and all these things, banners supporting the protests and so on. But now all have been removed. And, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, some student, I, I saw a report several months ago, the student, one student even reported an academic, a professor to the national security police. So, uh, so there is a lot of uh, fear and uh, anxiety and, uh, and the academics, some of them profess to be uh, under quite a bit of pressure and concern. And because some of the classes are by Zoom, and but now I guess some of them, maybe next month, they will come back to the on campus. So uh, they are really worried that whatever they say uh, would be recorded and would be uh, reported. So uh, there is uh, self-censorship and people are just too worried and they just don't want to take risks. Emily, Hong Kong used to have an independent judiciary. How's that sector affected? Um, are they under a lot of pressure from Beijing? The judges, well, the lawyers? I think, I think everybody, everybody is under, or most people are under pressure because the national security law is very sweeping and draconian. And also people are not that clear about the boundaries of the law, although they have it stated, but uh, we don't know how they would be interpreted and when uh, someone or an organization would be regarded as overstepping it and would get into trouble, uh, like the Apple Daily, uh, a few months ago, it was, uh, you know, this, it closed down and the assets were frozen and the senior 
executive and journalists have been arrested. They're still in jail, not yet tried. So people are very concerned. And just a few days ago, the biggest uh, union of the uh, teachers, the professional teachers union, announced they will dissolve and they have close to 100,000 members. And, uh, but the Beijing media still went on the attack on them. So, and if these things happen, normally you can go to the courts to try to get justice. Uh, but uh, uh, as I said, uh, people who have been arrested, and there are many, since the protests in uh, 2019, over 10,000 people have been arrested and about um, 3,000 have been prosecuted and some have been given bail, uh, but some have not, including members of my party and uh, some journalists and uh, news executives. And so um, it, it seems the courts are not really able uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to give these people justice. Because if you are arrested, either you are charged, then you have a trial. But the prosecution have said, especially regarding some political cases, including primary elections, uh, the prosecution said they're not ready. They're still investigating. But then why do you lock people up? And then the court accept that. And many people have been locked up and may be locked up for years. And, um, and then, of course, if they are tried under the national security law, and it can have very, very long sentences. So it is, it is a worrying thing. Uh, but of course, I don't think I will say that the independence of the judiciary is dead. Uh, I, I think, like many other people, the judges are under pressure. But there have been statements made by various people, even in the establishment, saying the judges are free, independent, and they can act as they like. And uh, so, uh, so I think some people, some people may not believe in that at all, and others uh, will hang on to it uh, because that's all we've got. So uh, it is, it is a worrying thing, and uh, and it is, uh, yes, to some people, especially those the families and people who've been locked up for such a long time. It is very, very distressing. Yeah, it's really a gloomy picture you've been uh, painting, Emily. How about the Democratic Party and the rest of the opposition? Is there a sense of fatigue or is fear predominant? Well, no. I think uh, there are no more pro-democracy politicians in the Legislative Council which is Hong Kong's parliament because they have resigned or they have been disqualified and some are already in prison and uh, also in the district councils uh, because there was a landslide victory in 2019. And then now the government is going to uh, make them take the oath, although they did uh, take office several years ago, but now they go have to take the oath uh, swear allegiance to uh, Hong Kong and to the basic law. But prior to that, uh, there were reports in the news media saying they would be disqualified and they would be uh, asked to pay back all the money they receive 
since they took office in uh, after the victory in 2019, and uh, it could become it could could be a million dollars or more. And so some were very worried, and so they they resigned instead of waiting to be disqualified. They resigned. Over 200 resigned. So some some are still there, including some from my party, but many from my party have resigned. So uh, so there are no more really very few pro democracy politicians in uh, the district council. And coming up, of course, later this year, there will be elections and then there will be election to the Legislative Council, which has been postponed for one year. And there will be election for an election committee, which will then choose members of the Legislative Council. And uh, but I guess uh, those elections will not be very much contested because uh, the many pro-democracy activists uh, will not take part. And because even if they do take part, uh, they will be disqualified. And because Beijing has said only patriots uh, can be allowed to run Hong Kong. And, uh, and uh, there, are, there are screening mechanisms uh, to ensure that uh, non-patriots will not be allowed to stand as candidates. So it is, uh, the situation is very difficult. And then uh, maybe next year in March, uh, there will be the election of the chief executive. The chief executive has a five-year term. It ends in June next year. So the election is in March. And there is also talk that maybe, maybe uh, the chief executive's election will also be uncontested. Hi, Emily. Yes. Okay. Yes, now, uh, since there's no, there's little representation now in LEGCO, how about the young activists? Is there a chance of regrouping? I mean, how can um, pro-democracy activists fight back? I mean, all the channels seem to have closed. Well, I mean, uh, this, my position is uh, that I am no long, I'm not that active in the political circle. I'm not even that active in my party because I have served for many years and I stepped down from LegCo in 2016. So I really cannot speak for them. I think in my party, I think the members, those few that I've spoken to, I think they want to carry on. And, but of course they could be arrested and uh, the party could uh, face pressure to disband uh, like other organizations, but we will carry on. But for the rest, I don't think I can speak for them, but I certainly know if I look out of the window with the gathering storm, I think the people are concerned, but I think there is a will, there is a determination uh, to, to continue the struggle. But as I said earlier, I insist this must be done in a peaceful and nonviolent way. And, uh, and I myself and my party and many Hong Kong people, we're not struggling for democracy. We're not struggling to use force and violence to overthrow the authorities in Hong Kong or in mainland China. We are just struggling to get the mainland government 
to keep the promises of the Sino-British Joint Declaration, whereby we can enjoy a high degree of autonomy, uh, be free and be safe, and to uh, pursue democratic reforms. So I think there will be people who will do it. And that's why I say the game is not over. And I think we should be bold, we should be wise and be careful. But if we are arrested, and then we have to make a sacrifice, but there will be others who will carry on. So do you see um, the role of the international community becoming bigger? It seems that there's a pause now in Hong Kong protests. So I think, what, what are the steps that could be done within or maybe outside Hong Kong? Well, of course, we have the national security law, so everybody has to be careful and not to break the law. And, uh, but speaking from an international city, which I hope Hong Kong still is, I hope uh, people in the international community will continue to uh, pay attention to what's happening here. And of course, to support our quest for freedom, for safety, and for democracy. What about the multilateral organizations, international organizations? Have they, have they been supportive? Maybe civil society organizations outside Hong Kong or multilateral forums? Um, well, I think the, the, the multilateral forum that we used to be very active in is the United Nations because apart from the fact that the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration was lodged with the UN, uh, Hong Kong is also a party to seven international human rights covenants and conventions. So in the past few decades, I have been to the UN many times as members of the NGO delegation to uh, produce our shadow report to the Hong Kong government's report to these UN treaty bodies. But of, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19, I think the operations at the UN, uh, including these committees, have really uh, uh, not been very active now, I think. So, uh, so that, is, uh, that is a problem. And others, I think maybe some are, some are supportive, and I think that is important. But as I said, because of the national security law, I don't think I should be uh, speaking too much. Maybe I've spoken too much already. <laughs> so, uh, well, we'll see what happens. I see if I'm still free to talk to you again. Yes. <laughs> Emily, we're very interested on the, on the personal aspect of you as a lawmaker, and now you continue to speak up on the issues affecting Hong Kong. So um, do you receive threats? Have you received threats to your life? No, no, so far not. Or maybe have there been have you been intimidated? You know, what keeps you going? I mean, how come you're able to speak to us so freely? Well, I don't know. I have not received threats or anything. Sometimes maybe, you know, I did, my name's mentioned in some news media reports, but not in such a big way like the professional teachers union or others. So I don't know. And uh, so, as I said, I try to be outspoken, but I don't try to break the law. And uh, so, uh, but you never know, maybe my turn will come up 
And uh, some people would say, oh, they let you speak out. So uh, then if people criticize them, they say, how come there's no freedom of speech? Look at Emily Lau, she's <laughs> speaking out. So you never know. I mean, uh, there is a chance, there is a risk, I know. And people have told me to shut up and, uh, you know, my friends. And uh, But I said, no, I'm a decent, upstanding human being. But I know, like others, we should know the risk. You people should know the risk in your country. But some people still do it, knowing full well that something bad could happen. It's not as if I'm saying, oh, nothing will happen to me. I'm okay. No, I'm not saying that. But... But I, I, that's why I said we need to be bold, we need to be wise, and we need to be careful. So where is all this coming from, Emily? Where is your courage? Uh, you know, all these bold statements you make, where is it all coming from? I mean, you've been a lawmaker for decades. You, you, you were a journalist. So where is this, um, maybe all your um, courage coming from? Well, I don't know. I think for many years, I have, you know, it's my character. I just don't like people or even governments walking all over me, although I'm just a tiny individual. That's why even when I was a journalist, I would join delegations to go to the United Nations to, they would say, to badmouth the government. But I, want to, I wanted the world to know that we little Hong Kong are, you know, very concerned. And, uh, and, and some, I remember it was 1988. I went to the UN Human Rights Committee and we told the committee that, you know, we are very concerned. Britain's about to pull out and we have no protection for human rights, no British citizenship and uh, no democratic parliament and all that. And, uh, and one member said to me afterwards when we were having coffee, he, is, uh, he was Judge Lala. He was the chief justice of uh, Mauritius. And he asked me, he said, Miss Lau, can you tell me how come Hong Kong, with all its economic prosperity and stability, How come you people have done so little to uh, fight for democracy and human rights? So I said, judge, judge, I'm not someone who would uh, hide behind excuses. I said, of course, you know, we, we have not been doing much all these years in fighting for all these universal core values. So we are wrong. There's no nothing. There's no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean the British government's right in not doing it for us. So, I mean, I think it was the first time the Human Rights Committee had people from Hong Kong going there to lobby. And since then, the lobbying has never stopped. And the committee was very sympathetic. I remember when I went there a few years ago, the, the lady member from France I don't remember her name, and she's a judge, and she's been on the committee for so many years. So when she spoke at the hearing, and she, of course, recognized me, I went up to say hello to her, and she said, we, the committee, we must do something for Hong Kong. These people have been coming to us for over two decades. The Human Rights Committee must speak out for Hong Kong. 
So I hope that committee, as well as other human rights committees, will be able to get back to work uh, actively and will cast a watchful eye over Hong Kong because we are party to those all those uh, human rights treaties and conventions which China allowed. Yeah, so it's good that you re you're reminding the human rights committees to focus again on Hong Kong. Maybe the last question, Emily, is do you get afraid? Are there moments that you feel afraid that you're in danger? Not yet, to be, to be, to be honest. Because, I, as I said, nobody has intimidated me. And when I, you know, walk out in the streets, I don't see people following me because others activists have complained that they have been followed. And uh, so uh, they, uh, and my phone, they said it's bugged, but I, my life is very open. <laughs> I put more of my activities on my Facebook anyway. So I'm not afraid, but I have seen friends, colleagues, activists being arrested, harassed, beaten up. You know, I've seen that. And I have told some people uh, to get ready if I do, if my day comes. So I think that is something that other activists are also doing, getting some of their friends or assistant or whatever to be ready. So when the police or the national security come and arrest us, then they can get ready and help us to get lawyers and uh, get other things. Uh, but uh, some may say this is the new normal in Hong Kong. But still, my parting word is that the game is not over. And of course, as I speak to you in the Philippines, you have what? Hundreds of thousands of your countrymen and women working. And many are because of COVID. They are waiting. Uh, they've already got their papers processed, but they have to get the vaccination and they are waiting to come to work here. And so are hundreds of thousands from Indonesia. And also there are many people from all over the world who want to come to work in Hong Kong. And I, I, I welcome them. I hope they can come and work in a safe, happy and protected environment. And so all of us here uh, will do our best uh, to ensure that uh, Beijing will keep the promises of the joint declaration and the basic law and maybe pay a price for doing that. Thank you so much, Emily. We wish you all the best and thank you for speaking up. And to the viewers and listeners, thank you for keeping us company. And to everyone out there, keep pushing back against autocracy and keep fighting for democracy. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vito. Lito Arlegue and Paolo Zamora with creative input from Jaja Anolo, administrative assistance from Audi Frias and Chelsea Caballero and editing by Point B Multimedia. <laughs>